Let us pray. Father God, we come to you broken pieces, and yet you have the power to make us whole. Only say the word and we shall be healed. Amen. We begin, Lord willing, a series that ultimately will be one long walk in the wilderness, covering several books of the Bible, sometimes jumping around and going back to places and going forward. And before we begin this series or this passage, I wanted to quickly talk about Asher's chocolates. Recently, the Aldifers picked my wife and I up for breakfast, and we went to breakfast at the energy station, and apparently something happened at breakfast. Either it was the eggs and the bacon and the toast, or just having to deal with the Park family for that prolonged period of time. But after we left the energy station, the them controlling the car, you know, where we go, they said, can we go to Asher's for some chocolate? And I had never been to the factory. I had never been there. And yet, going to Asher's Chocolate, I learned something. I learned something that probably Sandy knows for certain. That the smart money in Asher's Chocolates is not buying the chocolate that's perfect and all wonderful. You know, you go, where do you go to Asher's factory to buy the chocolates? You go to the seconds. You go to the chocolates. That upon the assembly line, as they trickled down, they said, oh, not that one, not that one, cast it away. And as before we start this entire series, especially when you get into the Old Testament, it, it has the tendency to shock people. Because we like to believe about ourselves that we're already pretty much who we are. That we've already been made the kinds of people we're made to be. And the truth of the matter is, that's not a biblical truth. The biblical truth is actually the fact that we are on our way to be made whole, be made the way we should be. In one sense, we have just started on that little conveyor belt at Asher's Chocolate, and we are an imperfect pretzel when being coated imperfectly by chocolate, and God comes along through the power of his spirit, and he enters into the lives of these imperfect people, these broken people, and through him, he makes them whole. Having an understanding of that throughout Genesis, throughout the books that we're going to be in, help give us a reference point. The Bible is a book that talks about broken people being made whole through the grace of God. God loves to shop at the seconds and the imperfect places. And so if you hold of that truth, you'll fare better than others do in our long walk in the wilderness. Now we begin our passage with Jacob, the patriarch, who God had already named Israel. We actually had a sermon on this a couple months ago, back in chapter 32. Israel meaning God fights, as in God fights for you, Jacob. And Jacob begins in a wilderness, really forgetting that simple truth, forgetting that name that he had already been given by God earlier, that truth that God fights for him. And like many other times that you find in the narrative of Jacob's life, 
with his encounters with Laban, with his encounters with his brother Esau, Jacob, we find here in this moment, was afraid. And he's possibly more afraid than he's ever been. You see, his daughter Dinah had just been violated in the chapter before, chapter 34, by basically what amounts to a local chieftain of the area. Sometimes in the biblical translation, the man who is responsible for Dinah's violation is called a local prince. I think the ESV translates it that way. He was no prince. He was a godless violator of women. And in response to this violation of Dinah, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon, his second-born son, and Levi, his third-born son, and his son who we would get the Aaronic priesthood, or God would make the Aaronic priesthood from, strike down not only the chieftain, but all the men who were loyal to him, essentially wiping out a small village worth of men. And Jacob closes chapter 34, fearful that the entire region of Canaan would come down upon his family, his household, in judgment for, the, for revenge for the actions of Simeon and Levi. And while Jacob tells his sons of personal fears, Simeon and Levi closed the previous chapter by making it clear that such a violation of their sister was not something they could overlook, and they would not apologize for their actions. And it's in this despair of Jacob that we get to verse 1 of chapter 35 of Genesis. God's voice breaks forth, basically saying, get up, Jacob. Get up in this place of Shechem that you and your household continue to languish in and go back to Bethel, meaning Beth, house of, El is the short word for God, Bethel, meaning house of God. Go back to the house of God, the region that I call the house of God. Remember that at the start. Every time you hear Bethel, you shouldn't be thinking like of a mega church, possibly. You should actually be thinking like an ancient Jew would. They would be thinking about the house of God. Jacob, go and make an altar at that place where God appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. By the way, this is the only time God requests an altar specifically be made for him by the patriarchs. And why does God ask Jacob, who's afraid he's going to be killed by an angry nation of people, this request? This request actually is given by God because it serves a twofold purpose. It was first to revitalize Jacob's faith life. But it also was there to remind Jacob, I've always been faithful to protect you. Why do you doubt me now? How did this request revitalize Jacob's faith life? Well, see, back in Genesis 28, verses 20 through 22, Jacob at that time had been worried about his brother basically killing him. And he basically makes a promise with God. And the promise was this, God, if you deliver from me for my brother, I will basically come back to this place and build an altar to you here. I will worship you here. I will praise you here. And God keeps up his end of the bargain. God keeps his promise. Jacob doesn't. Actually, 
anywhere from 10 to 15 years have gone by, and Jacob has neglected his promise to God. He has a languishing faith. He will not honor his word to God. And by the way, he wasn't very far away. He was 20 miles away. That's a day's walk at a good brisk pace. He's outside the house of God that he promised to go to in worship of God, and he's been sitting as an outsider. Jacob right now, I bet, is a lot like what I would suspect the churches might bump into in the years ahead. Congregations throughout the country might start bumping into people from time to time who over the course of the next several years are finally coming back. Hopefully that happens. I mean, a couple of years ago, we were all praying fervently, and there have been heartaches, there have been losses, but I'm sure a lot of promises were given, God, if you deliver us from this, I will respond with rejoicing, I will respond with praise, and the numbers bear the fact that faith in this country is languishing. It's been forgotten about. It's been cast aside how little it can take to keep us away from the house of God. How little, pathetically little it can take. And the beauty of verse 1 is God sees Jacob and his family languishing. And God's not vindictive. God's not seeking revenge. Rather, he speaks to Jacob, reminding him, that God's always been good to him. Regardless of the fact that Jacob's an imperfect Asher's pretzel on the conveyor line, God's been good to him. Jacob, over the cup until this point, has often been a spiritual coward. Sometimes even before the eyes of his own children, there are moments in Genesis 27, Genesis 29, Genesis 30, Genesis 31 that bear this truth. He had gone off and lived a carnal and worldly life, often afraid to act righteously at the right moment. And this just hadn't impacted him by this point. It had actually begun expressing itself within his family, within his household, within his children. And it's at this moment God speaks up to Jacob, reorienting Jacob back to God, calling Jacob back to the house of Beth, the Bethel of God, the house of God. And Jacob hears that call. Has been God been calling you to renew your faith, to renew a right spirit within you? I mean, even I, teaching the Bible for a living, I kid you not, I'm being probably too candid here, but about, I could not sleep last night. About 3 a.m. in the morning, I thought, how could I get out of preaching tomorrow? Uh, well, I guess it was today, but you know what I mean. Don't we all have seasons where our faith ebbs and wanes. God calls to his people. So are you heeding that call, Christian? Or are you continuing to ignore it? And notice how Jacob responds. He starts with leading nothing short of a family worship in preparation to move to this place called the house of God. He tells his household, put away all the false gods. By the way, this took courage for Jacob to ask such thing of his household Remember, households in those days weren't just your children. You were also telling to people connected to your family. 
it was a congregation of sorts, to get rid of something that was not good for them to carry. And often, what do we do? We want to hold on to those things so tightly. But Jacob, he no longer has fear, but he has boldness at this moment. And his family, by the way, was literally swimming in false gods. Actually, if you read the passage, they're up to their ears in idols, literally speaking. And it's true, both because Simeon and Levi in the previous chapter had, in sacking this small chieftain clan, basically taken all their idols for themselves. But also, let's be honest, the worst idols of Scripture, the worst idols of our homes are never the small trinkets, never the gadgets and gizmos of plenty, the who's-its and what's-its galore, or having those thingamabobs which have, of which I have 20. No, the worst idols are those subtle sins. The kids got that one, right? Are those subtle sins, those habits of pattern that we just continue to justify false self-righteousness and pretend are okay rather than admitting their ungodly control over us. Actually, it's amazing. Roughly 200 years later, on this very spot, Joshua will be talking to the nation now of Israel, and he will be telling them the same thing. Get rid of your idols. Because what do we do? We love our idols. We love our trinkets. I found out this week, just this little fantastic feature on my iPhone. I'm so excited about it. You can permanently disable your web browser. And it's great. Just telling Bruce Clydesdale how pumped up I was about this. Because how much time do we all waste in a week swiping or scrolling or whatever on a little tiny piece of junk? Anything hard to put down, anything hard to put away, anything that limits our fuller life in the Lord for the sake of God, that's an idol. And we all have things that are hard to put away and hard to set aside and to move forward with in life, without in life. But Jacob, leading his family in worship, goes through his household and clears it of idols. And then he follows it up by asking that basically they wash themselves, basically put on your Sunday best as we head towards the house of God. Kids, do you sometimes get annoyed when your parents flick the light switch and tell you to get ready from church? You know, from personal experience, it's easy to grumble. We all have those mornings. But what actually is trying to be conveyed in an ideal form, what your parents want you to know, what your grandparents want you to know, who encourage you to come to church in such a way, is what Jacob is remembering in this very passage. You know what? God has been good to me, and I want you to know it too. God has protected me, and I want you to know it too. God has cast away all my fears, and he watches over me, and I want you to know that too. That's what your loved ones want you to get a hold of. God wants us to share that with others in love. Little children, both young and old, that's the simple core of what we're doing here once again is reminding one another, God is good. And we need this to be a place of reminder because so much of what goes on TV and our gadget and what the doctor is telling us and what our body is telling us and sometimes even what loved ones, friends or family and members are saying, it's hard for us to hear, it weighs us down. And yet God is good. 
And so let's then go again, once again, to this house of worship, this house of God. There's also an additional beautiful truth here in this passage. After up to 15 years of languishing, Jacob and his household's faith is being inspired afresh by God, reminding us it's never too late to make a deep investment into your household. It might feel too late. It might sometimes feel like it's hopeless. But as someone who has known deathbed confessions within my extended household, but, and in, with others, it's never too late. Jacob is finally having the courage to set things right in his house that, over for, that at least over a decade he did not have the courage to do. And then in verse 4, Jacob, having gathered the idols, the trinkets, the false gods that were in his abode, buried them in Shechem. And this is interesting. I almost made the whole sermon about this, but changed my mind. He buried them. Anybody remember what Moses does to the golden calf? Grinds it into dust. He absolutely destroys it. Actually, the passage translates it rightly so. He actually doesn't even really bury it. He hides it away. And I don't know exactly the motive there of Jacob. I don't think the text gives me enough to speak to why he was burying it. But I know the human heart. And let me say this. Often we just bury our idols under a small veneer of dirt, but they still have a hold of us, and we, we still want the ability to possibly return to them, have the courage to ground them into dust, if so needed, to totally eradicate them, if so needed, in order to no longer languish in the faith. Just this, I'm going to share this illustration because I like it. And I've been talking about chocolate, so I got to talk about more. I am 45 pounds lighter from my high. I need to lose more than 45 pounds more, but I'm 40 pounds lighter from my high. Even my wife today, when I put my jacket, she goes, it's not that it's too tight. It just doesn't sit well. Don't button it. But on Friday, I went to Aldi and I found that great temptation of this season called Cadbury Cream Eggs in a four pack. And I was really good on Friday. I didn't eat a single one of them. And then on Saturday, you know, my wife, anything you need, you know, I'm working at my desk, working on the sermon. I go, oh, the Cadbury cream eggs, you can bring those over. Sure enough, I had one right away. Man. Good, delicious. And then I'm immediately thinking to myself, that didn't last long enough. I need to have another one. So mm, I had another one powered that down, I think even faster than the first one. And then I go, whoa, whoa, I got to slow down here. So what did I do? Did I throw them away? No, I didn't throw them away. I'm not a monster. I put them in, the, in my desk drawer. They're in my lower cabinet right now. Two left. That's what we're like with idols. But we want to be careful with them. We want to be careful. I'm not a madman. I'm not going to throw away cranberry cream eggs, Cadbury cream eggs. But it does take far greater courage eradicating idols and keeping those idols under the surface. And then in verse 5, we read that as the family journeyed the 20 miles, the cities, Jacob was worried about would crush his household. God protected. I actually, I don't, I'm not sure if he was aware of this or Moses knew this. 
Because remember, Moses was the writer of this. He's relaying this event. But I, you know, I thought about Moses in this verse because when it comes to Exodus to Deuteronomy, Moses is just kind of rehashing his own life. I think he would have drawn unique courage from Genesis. And so think about Moses and the people of Israel. There are people who were pursued by the most advanced military in the world. And then when they're entering Canaan, a land that many of them were afraid that giants would overwhelm them. And I think godly men like Moses, godly men like Joshua, godly men like Caleb, they understood the God who fights their battles for them. I think they would have been well acquainted with verse 5 and put a lot of trust in it. And I think we should too. Often I've heard the expression of fear as we see a society continue to not want to invite Christian ethics into the public discourse. And I understand that's a troubling thing, but remember, God does go out before us and fights our battles, and he restrains our enemies. And so Jacob and his household arrive at Bethel safely in the heart of the house of God. And he finally, more than a decade after his promise, builds the altar he told God he would build. The altars of the patriarchs were to be, in one sense, these markers where in a land they knew was controlled by others who would not worship the true God, but a marker that this land was ultimately set aside for a greater king and a greater kingdom, that this was a land God had promised to do something amazing with. And so the making of an altar was a land claim on behalf of Yahweh and Jacob renames the place the God of the house of God. And I was thinking about that image of an altar. Here we have this rock place of offering, these stones collected to offer unto the Lord. And it's really not that different than a church. Here we have stone walls. And what makes these stone walls matter is what's contained in them is an offering to the true God. Not a God of false idols, not a false God, not a false God made in the image you want God to be. You want a God who is a God of the mirror, who looks exactly like you want him to look, but the true God. That's what makes a house of God. And that's why we can say here at Old Goshenhop, we have a house of God so long as we are faithful to the word of God. That the word of God, his word dwells here honestly and openly and faithfully. And that's what makes this place, in one sense, a mini altar. Not that we need another sacrifice. The sacrifice of Calvary was perfect. But it's an altar in the sense that it marks that this entire world, this region of the world, Waxall, in the world to come, is going to be a place that at its heart, that in every reach, in every corner, serves the king. That's what churches are. Churches are markers of a new heavenly kingdom to come. And it's interesting, after this altar is set up, I think the ancient Israeli reader would have been asking themselves, because of the name, the God of the house of God, it implies the presence of God there. They would have been wondering, is this place a new Eden that Jacob has stumbled upon? A place where maybe the curse is no longer found. And verse 8 reminds us that there's an already but a not yet. 
The death was still found there. We have Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, die. To understand the meaning of who Deborah is, we need to appreciate the fact that we're, first off, not talking about a nurse in a hospital gown. We are talking about Rebecca, who was Jacob's mother, the mother who loved him, protected him, who had already died by this time. And Deborah had been Rebecca's own wet nurse, and by extension, was most likely also Jacob's own wet nurse. He would have, she would have been a grandmother-like figure to Jacob, but she's also the last of that generation. As Deborah passes, she represents a unique and last link, seemingly, to his mother. And it would have caused Jacob grief. And yet, notice where he buries her still, in this place called the house of God under an oak tree, a strong and mighty oak tree. It's interesting. I mean, from out west, you hardly see cemeteries by churches anymore, by houses of worship, by houses set apart for God. And yet here Jacob sows in the house of God. And this amazing thing can happen in the house of God. And so those who sow in faith in the house of God even the departed can find blessing in the face of death because God comes to meet them. See, the last link between Jacob and his mother was not Deborah. The last link was the God who then appears in verse 9 to his mother as he is the hope of life after death. God appears to Jacob again, as he does throughout the Old Testament. We have this beautiful scene in these verses. God has come to Jacob after Jacob has planted the last of his grandfather's generation by the oak tree. And how does God introduce himself in the Hebrew? He says to Jacob, I am El Shaddai. It's a term that God uses uniquely to the patriarchs, El Shaddai. It, it, it implies fruitfulness life-giving realities to God. Basically here, Jacob has just sown a body in death and God comes to him personally and says, but I am the God who is fruitful and multiply. I am the life giver. And the reality is that's been true of God from the very beginning. Our sin invented death. Our sin created death. He has always been the Lord, the giver of life. And so he meets Jacob in that house of God, and he blesses Jacob in that house of God, because that's what the giver of life does. And how does Jacob respond to God coming down to him? With the same pattern that has followed this whole text, it's with worship. Actually, in verse 14, it's the first time in Scripture someone is showing, shown providing a drink offering unto the Lord. And in the drink offering, it was really a twofold offering. It wasn't an offering that only the high priest could do. Anybody in Israel could do it. And in the drink offering, the primary symbolism is this. I'm remembering that God who continues to pour out abundantly his blessings upon me. And then likewise, I in response to his pouring out such blessing am called to pour out blessings upon those in whom I have dealings with, interactions with in my household. It's a twofold blessing. And so we have begun our walk in the wilderness. 
we have found a Jacob who responds to God in all manner of seasons of life. Greater trials are soon to come for him. Even next week, a harder trial is in store for him. But when our passage had begun today, his faith had grown cold and was languishing. And he was in fear of death for both himself and his children. And he had been forsaking his commitments to God. And he and his household were literally covered into their ears, up to their ears in idols. And yet Jacob responded to the voice of God. It's amazing how simple the root of our faith is. He just wants a response to his voice. And Jacob, in thankful response, does away with the family's idols and travels to the house of God, God protecting them all the way. And from there, he builds an honor altar, finally honoring the promise he gave God more than a decade earlier. And with that, and after that, we saw a season of sorrow fall upon Jacob as a loved one died. And yet he sowed the body within the house of God near the mighty oak. And God then came to J Jacob, shining his face upon the patriarch once more. And God, in introducing himself, reminded Jacob that he is the great El Shaddai, the giver of life, the one who takes seeds sown in dishonor and grows them into a flourishing and multiplying harvest. And God reminded Jacob once more that he had given Nate Jacob a new name and promised kings would come from his line and a great many nations, and to remember a name he had forgotten in the land of Shechem. And that name is a name that reminds all of us in every season, I am the God who fights for you. I am the God who pours out my blessings upon you. And the name above every name, of course, is not Israel. It's Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So what response does that reality of Christ create in you? Does it make you just want to head to the doors and go languish in your household yet again? The fact that our God poured out his blood upon the mighty oak tree that is the cross of Calvary upon this barren land in order to be the ultimate El Shaddai, the ultimate fruitful and multiply giving God that gives life to us, does that just make you want to languish? To continue in languishing in idols and falsehoods and false gods? Or does that make you want to worship the God who so loves you and is so faithfully committed to you? The God whom which you can even bury your loved ones and know that is not the end. What does it cause for you, Christian? Something for us all to think about. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, let us hear the word. Let us be made whole by it. Let us, imperfect people, come to know the full measure of Christ's great atoning gift. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.